Welcome to the Governance and Leadership Demystified podcast, where we share educational and inspirational stories that delve deeper into the governance and leadership journey. Without further ado, introducing your host, the CEO and founder of Synergy Executive and Boards Consulting Group, Trish Mendewo. I am super elated to have PK Match on our show today. PK is a serial social purpose entrepreneur, tongue twister it is, a startup incubator and accelerator programming strategy and design consultant. She is deeply committed to creating a more just, human-centered and generative economy by educating founders and leaders on the power of feminist business practice, pedagogy and theory and their capacity to transform and unleash overlooked potential. That is huge, PK. PK is also a certified feminist business model canvas master coach. She is a growth will advisor and she holds an EMBA from the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. In addition, she is a co-founding co-producer of the Entrepreneurial Feminist Forum, also known as EFFS, an educational collaboration and resilience crafting conference for entrepreneurial feminists of all genders. PK was recognized as one of Canada's inspiring 50 women in April of 2018. Congratulations. And as a top community collaboration by the Immigrant Women in Business Association in 2019. That's some huge accomplishment, PK. Once again, I am looking forward to our conversation today. I know our audience are on to having some great information and great great tips from all the work that you do. So can you start by sharing with me what's the most important thing you want our audience to take away from today's conversation? Okay, the most important thing is I want entrepreneurs at all level, whether they are at the startup stage or currently have a business that they're operating, or even if they work for someone else at this point, I want everybody to take away this idea that boards and bylaws in particular are under leveraged social, uh, under leveraged tools for social change. And they are so overlooked. And, um, and why that's important be, is because bylaws are the, are the organization's laws. You, you can mess around in policies. So, you know, lots of times you can, uh, people will say, oh, that sounds more like a policy, not a bylaw that we should be implementing. But when it comes to social change, like social justice, uh, amplifying your DEI work by making a commitment to um, dismantle racist, uh, racist um, operational policies and so on, why not put it into your bylaws and not leave it up to who's at the helm at the time or how the board feels about an issue at the time shaped by what's happening out in the world at the time. So bylaws are tools for social change. That's the big idea. Yeah. So in other words, you want them to take the guesswork out of it and ingrain it right into the bylaws. Yes. Hell yes. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like something I'm all for. So, So take us into the journey. How did you get here? 
how did you get to this passion of supporting females through Lisbeth Media? Yeah, so thanks. Well, okay. Um, well, I came to Canada from Northern Europe when I was about seven. And my mother, you know, like a lot of immigrant families, the first thing you do is start a business or kind of, so I kind of grew up a bit with entrepreneurship. So at um, 13, I started my first venture, which was selling macrame planters and uh, chokers and all that kind of stuff and paper mache flowers, um, my crafts. But I learned very quickly trying to make some extra money doing that, that uh, the product doesn't sell itself. <laughs> and uh, anyways, then went on to uh, take up journalism at, at uh, Carleton University um, and needed to, it was the early 80s, there were no jobs for students, um, so I needed to figure out how to pay tuition. So even though I wasn't a business student um, and didn't really have a background in business uh, other than my macrame stand, um, I decided to start a company because there was an ad for, um, for a student loan for, to start a business. It was the 80s, it was $2,000 if you applied, so I applied and then, um, you know, I was wondering what should I do as a business? And so I, the only thing I kind of asked a few friends, like, what would you do? And a friend of mine in Moncton at the time said, oh, I've just started a cleaning business. So I went, cleaning? That's a great idea. Little did I know how much work it would be because the truth was I'd never really cleaned anything in my entire life. <laughs> my mother could attest to that. Um, and she thought it was a terrible idea, but um, so I built a little business plan uh, around uh, starting a cleaning, a maid service, basically, roped in a friend of mine, and we started this business, and through that business, um, I learned so much, and I won't tell you the entire story other than to say it was, it turned out to be like the most amazing experience and most amazing education of my life, and uh, I also learned because we eventually grew to several teams. I was just 24 at the time and learned a lot about what uh, it was like to be a woman in the work world, even though I was a student. So my sort of feminist journey, which actually started as a teenager, but uh, was kind of reinforced by, by the realities of being a woman in business at that age, but also a woman hiring other women with much more experience and learning from them some of the barriers that they faced. So that was the beginning of the journey. I'll just then quickly fast forward and say, I, after the maid service, which I sold, uh, my first exit, and it was a good one. Um, I went into corporate life because I wanted to be in publishing and I ended up getting into publishing, but I spent 18 years in progressive roles in corporate life. And I call those my patriarchal Petra years. PK stands for P is for Petra because I actually, this again was the eighties. Remember the big shoulders uh, for those of you in the audience who remember that time, we were told at that time, women's women had just, you know, we'd won some rights. Uh, abortion uh, was made legal in the 80s here in Canada, and there were a bunch of other lots of things happening in the women's rights movement. So I, 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 I was there at a time where I really believed that women, all women had to do was, was um, you know, that we could do anything. But then I learned in my corporate career, you could do anything as long as you behaved like a guy. So I called myself patriarchal Petra, and I learned what it was to be a patriarchal sexist, uh, you know, sort of, um, well, you know, leader, manager, all those things, because those were what was, those were the things that were generally rewarded. Um, 
Now, that doesn't mean I didn't put myself into it. I was recognized as, as a, uh, a different type of uh, corporate leader, and that helped me advance in my career. Um, I had a baby. And, uh, you know, I was kind of like, you know, my feminist action, my feminist work really took a backseat while I was climbing the corporate ladder. But when I had a baby, I realized how much the world hadn't changed from my mother's day. And uh, wow. I was traveling a ton and I, you know, I couldn't do it. So in the end, I resigned, told the board I was leaving in a year. And when my daughter was two, I left to build a dairy. And that is my third venture. It was, I, I set out to build the world's greenest dairy. Uh, that dream came about in 2000, uh, 2002 is Aaron Brockovich time. It was Al Gore time. I was interested in food because of what I was putting into my baby's mouth. And I decided I was gonna build the most um, sustainable uh, authentic dairy in the world, which we did. Uh, it ran on um, solar, wind, and geothermal. Uh, we had a bio wetland to digest the whey. We did the whole nine yards. So that was my next venture for 10 years. And then now I'm here with Lisbeth and Evolution. Wow. Love your journey. So you, you started with a, with a cleaning company. By the way, we share that journey. I also had a cleaning company in the US in the 90s. So, you know, you started there and then you went to a dairy and now you're with Lisbeth Media. But can you walk me through that transition to get into the feminist governance? How did that come about? I know you, you, you mentioned that you were seeing that things were still the same as they were during your mother's days. Is that what inspired you to get into the feminist governance? Yeah, so let's talk about feminine governance specifically. So during that time too, over, over, uh, over my career, I had the opportunity to sit on a number of boards. And um, so while all these, you know, there's parallel tracks. So it, it just so happened, I mean, I started Elizabeth in 2016 in response to the lack of, um, lack of support for women entrepreneurs in the, in the incubator accelerator systems that were starting to open up across Canada, you know, it's post 2008 and everybody was supporting entrepreneurship and trying to give business a better name. And uh, that was also part of the tech boom stuff and women were sort of left out. Um, so I, I, was, I started Elizabeth in response to that, but the feminist governance side really kicked off when I was uh, part of a nonprofit organization uh, who had a board that could not have been more destructive or more patriarchal. In fact, I had several, I'd been on many other boards and Nature Conservancy of Canada. I was vice chair at the Ontario College of Art and Design University. We had very good board experiences in a lot of cases, but in this case, it was an eye opener. And um, so then I decided be, I was already doing, um, you know, a lot of advocacy work and, and work around advancing women in the entrepreneurship and innovation space. And then I realized there was uh, a need to do something about um, at a higher level, which was bylaws and boards. So that's where that's where that journey started. Well, so did you have along that path, did you have any any fears or any reservations that you were going into this radical space? <laughs> Yes, um, yes, because whenever you do, I consider myself a radical, you know, entrepreneur, uh, feminist, 
meaning I'm interested in so wholesale social change, not just, you know, empowerment is great and all there's all kinds of angles. We're all climbing the same mountain. We just start at different places and move up in different places. But I'm particularly interested in significant uh, systems change and particularly uh, so, uh, economic political change. So that's more on the radical side. I want to change the whole damn thing, not just make <laughs> part of it. So um, that puts me on that side of the feminist spectrum. Um, so when you start talking about radical practices in board, you start getting a fair amount of pushback, first of all, from boards themselves and from experience board and the established board uh, directors kind of sense of best practices. Now, I'm not new to that because it, back in the early 2000s, in introducing environmental governance and oversight to boards was considered radical too. That was in the pre-2008 days where a board's job was to protect the bottom line and to protect shareholder interests before people generally started thinking more broadly around corporate social responsibility. CSR was just new at that time. And of course the environmental piece was just new. So now fast forward to 2021, environmental governance is part of most boards conversations. They may not always do right by it, but um, uh, organizationally, but they, it is part of the conversation, whether you're a food company, a mining company, whatever, and, um, or even a retail or a restaurateur, uh, you know, environmental uh, justice and uh, preventing hurting the environment is in our psyche. Um, the same should hold true for social justice. And that just wasn't the case yet. You look around the board table, you see mostly white people, mostly white guys still. Sometimes in more progressive organizations, you, you do see um, women around the board table. But my observation has been that the women around the board table, and please don't take this the wrong way, are so happy to be there. They fought so hard to get there. They don't say peep uh, half the time when something controversial or where they really need to stand up. And I don't want to paint all women on boards with the same brush by any means. And I totally understand why it might be difficult to say something, especially when you feeling right away, you get that, that freeze out, right? That kind of like mm -hmm. everybody you and you're frozen out. So just having women on boards isn't, isn't going to help us change a lot. And of course, then we have the, um, you have to have at least three women on boards thing, which does help in numbers. And now the government has launched its 50-30 diversity, you know, board challenge, challenge. is 30% gender, 30% people of color. But um, where I'm going with this is, it doesn't, you know, most progressive organizations and corporations these days do have uh, diversity, inclusion, um, and equity mission statements. They have uh, policies and HR around this. But weirdly, the board may not have to follow those policies themselves. They may go around and set their own rules, uh, like in terms of a board, they may say, okay, well, we'd like to have 50% women on this board and we'll give ourselves X number of years to get there. But it's not in the bylaws. It's not, it, anyone, new leaders can come in, the, the zeitgeist of culture can change and those, and so can the board. And so the reason, um, this is radical to suggest that you incorporate social justice into your bylaws, just like we incorporate things like you can't be on a board if you've been bankrupt, you know, and I think yes. that comes from the time of workhouses and your ability to manage money. We still have that. That's actually what part of the legislation, if I 
understand that correctly. And so um, if we can still have 18th century stuff in there that says, you know, only these kinds of people can serve on boards, we can certainly have rules and, and legislation around social justice when it comes to board governance. And that's what we're yeah. missing. Yeah, exactly. And, and I like how you said back then when you were bringing these issues forward, you were, you know, there was pushback, right? And there was resistance. But now you look at, you know, environmental social governance, it is, you know, being pushed. There's still a lot of ways to go. A lot of boards are not uh, taking the ESG route. So we have a lot of work cut out for us. But I just love the fact that you had that insight years ago. And mm -hmm. today you are still pushing, you know, and, and going on that same trajectory and hopefully you will get more boards picking up on that, right? So mm -hmm. can you talk about the impact that the feminist governance model that you created has made within Canada? Yeah, so I have to say that my, so really we've been, uh, so not much, let's summarize it that way. And the reason is it's uh, generally quite new to be suggesting uh, a, the idea of, a, of updating your bylaws and incorporating social justice principles right in your bylaws. Policy is a whole other matter. So when I say this stuff, when I go out and say, this is what you should do, uh, there is pushback. There is, well, that should just be a policy. And here's what I hear most often. You know, bylaws are hard to change. We shouldn't change those. Let's just make it a policy to which I, re I respond. This is one of the important things that you should not ever be changing back to anything. This is not, you know, the idea of, of uh, including, let's say, accessibility or including Indigenous and Black voices on their board can't be just about a policy. It also has to be mandated uh, as part of the mandated because it's in the bylaws. And that's the piece that I think is missing. And as soon as you say that, the lawyers included will say they have hesitation because they're, they, they think, what if it changes? And I'm saying, if that changes, we are going backwards. It should yeah. not change. It should only get better from there. Exactly, exactly. I often tell people, you know, what our company does, you know, uh, advocating for equity, diversity and inclusion. I always tell people in 20 years, I want there to not be the need for that. It should yeah. be part of the day-to-day -day, um, causes, right, to be inclusive. So I hear you saying the same thing, that the bylaws should include those aspects that are considered radical right now. Can you share a couple more examples of what's in your feminist governance model? Yes. So let me, um, so we've done a lot of work and I, I do want to share uh, with your audience too that uh, we didn't, my, my board and I didn't think this up ourselves. We actually, we set out the objectives to create the most and articulate the most feminist bylaws ever. So we did research and looked at other feminist organizations and their bylaws. We looked at progressive organizations and to see how, and social justice organizations and looked at theirs. And then we brought together a team of reviewers, which included lawyers from different law firms, uh, because we didn't want just one opinion. Uh, we also accessed, um, uh, you know, the minds of uh, Natiqua, uh, 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 Natisha Masakwa, and other folks who have written a lot about these kinds of things. So this was a group effort, is where I'm going 
uh, with this. So at the end of it all, um, we came out with a set of bylaws that we think is pretty radical. And I've had lots of people review it since then. And they confirm that it's radical. And they're like, if you can hold yourself to this standard, good for you. <laughs> Um, so, and we are going to hold ourselves to this standard. So let me just point out a couple of quick things that kind of stand out. And the first one is we don't say we want a diverse board and we're committed to diversity. We basically number, um, we hold at least, we have 12 seats. We hold a minimum of one seat for an indigenous person, a minimum of one seat for a black person, not BIPOC, because we want to be specific about including certain um, uh, certain uh, groups into our board makeup. So we actually, it's it, in other words, technically we're not operating according to our own laws unless we have those seats filled. And that's a big commitment. Um, the second thing is uh, board compensation and, and equity as to who can have it. So there's always a discussion, especially in the nonprofit world about board compensation. You don't get any, um, right? Yep. But we, we felt that left people out of serving on boards who had a lot to say and a lot to give. So we put in board compensation for anyone who earns below the thrive rate in our region, in our territory. So that means they, the board can approve a stipend for that person so that they can afford to spend the time you know, to be on that board if, for example, they are a laborer or someone working for an hourly minimum wage, but who's board savvy. Uh, and um, just can't really afford the time, but we want their perspective on the board. Another thing I will just mention is um, a couple of quick categories, and that's around uh, mediation access. A key one is non-disclosure. We will never use non-disclosure as a way to shut someone up. And um, yeah, and we have a, a we put in our a st a standing committee, like they're in a lot of bylaws around, we will have a finance committee, we will have a nomination committee, and we'll have an audit committee. We put in, we will have a community care committee as a standing uh, committee. Okay. Those, those are some great examples. And I think you have another really good one you wanted to share. Can you share with the audience? Yeah, sure. Um, one of the other things, uh, other than the non-disclosure, you know, limited use of non-disclosure is, um, I would say access to, and I think I said, sorry, now I have to do time and, and start again. Okay, I'm gonna start again, no. <laughs> um, okay, yes, yeah, so one other one that I think is uh, an important one, and this might be more organizational to organization, but this comes up a lot in the in the nonprofit uh, uh, space as well, and that is, um, do staff have voting rights? Does the executive director have voting rights, or can they be on the board and not just present to the board? There are many different opinions about that, and it probably depends on the nature and size of the organization, and that goes for for profits as well. Um, we definitely, uh, you know, governance best practice generally says. The president of the organ of the company should not be the chair of the board, and we would agree with that. But um, we don't see any reason why a staff member like the ED or something like that can't also have a seat on the board and a board position at the same time. So they have some power. They have power of influence, anyways. But I think um, having them having them have a vote is uh, at least for us works in our favor. We feel makes that, uh, makes that stronger and also makes the executive director have a different sense of, or relationship to the board. They're not just 
working for the board as staff, but they are also of the board. Having said that, with 12 board members, obviously, if the staff member is in favor of, of something that no one else is, it still doesn't get passed. But I think it changes the, this kind of like hierarchical sense of the relationship with the board and the staff by having that connection and, and that ability to vote. Thank you. What other insights can you share um, about in regards to what it means to be a feminist in a male-dominated space? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So in every way, feminism is a big space. It's a bit like religion, right? So it, you can have of the world's big religions. You can take uh, Islam, you can take Christianity, and you can have Baptists on one side of the world, and, and you can have uh, Presbyterian over here and Anglicans over here. So feminism is not just one thing. There's only one thing that is common, and that is a de de desire for ending oppression so that all could flourish and ending sexism in particular. It is the only movement, by the way, and I like to remind people about this, that is gender-centric. So of all the great social movements we have going on right now, um, for example, uh, Marxism is about, cla is about uh, class relations, right? And civil rights movement is around race. Uh, and we have the environmental movement, which is around the environment. We have pro-democracy movements, which is around political process. And feminism is the only major social movement that concerns itself with gender equity. So what does it mean to you know, be a feminist uh, today and, and to me? Um, we know that feminists or that genders are not binary. We know that feminist work has always helped all genders, even when it comes down to parental care and even Canada's great win right now, which is we're going to have universal childcare finally in this country. And that is one of the biggest wins for feminism uh, over the last 50 years. And um, so I guess what it, when you say, what's it like to be a feminist in a patriarchal world today? Feminism certainly has experienced a resurgence. I can't remember, well, I was like in my teenagers in, in the 70s, so uh, feminism was everywhere then. Why not? Button 1976. Well, it feels like we're in the 1960s and 70s all over again, just socially with all the social movements and activism going on and everything else. And men, including our own prime minister, whether you think he's acting like a feminist or not, uh, we'll ask Roxane Gay about that, who's, who's you know, wrote... Um, wrote a bad feminist. Um, so whatever your definition is and whatever you believe a feminist should look or act like, feminism is for everyone. And men identify as feminists almost as much as women do. But having said that, still the majority of men and women do not identify as feminists, just like the majority don't identify as Marxists or as civil rights, uh, anti-racist workers, but they, they, a lot more of them actually believe in those beliefs. They just don't like using the language, uh, the movement label um, around that. So what is it like to be a feminist now? I think it's more open. People have more open to radical ideas than they've been, let's say 10 years ago. Uh, I think people are more, um, and I almost thank Donald Trump for that because he really, <laughs> for better or for worse, ignited reignited the feminist movement. Um, but I think it's uh, helping to take us that much further down humanity's journey towards a, a world where everyone can authentically flourish. People talk about all, where all can flourish. I mean, authentically flourish. So in other words, 
um, whoever you are with whatever backpack you're carrying or whatever nature and, and uh, you know, the spirits gave you, um, you can flourish in the way that you are meant to be contributing to this world. And it may be as an artist, it may be as a caregiver, it may be whatever, um, but you can flourish and not have to fit yourself into something just to make a, enough of a living for your family. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you for that. So when you talk about having certain number of specific subsets of the population being on a board, you mentioned earlier, reserving a seat for indigenous, reserving a seat for blacks. Can you tell me what that does to the whole governance? You know, it's one thing to, you know, sort, sort of, uh, would you call those quarters in your quarters? opinion? Quarters? Yeah. Uh, would you consider them quarters or you're just, how would you? Oh, some quotas, I see. Quarters, yes. Right. Would you consider them quotas? Yeah, I, I do consider that not, I mean, because it's only one seat, I consider it, um, I, so yes, it, I guess in some sense, yes, it is a quota. It's like saying, you know, we're going to have 30% of 50% uh, of women on boards. It's mm -hmm. only a quota if it's legislated, uh, or I guess that's mm -hmm. in, in a larger sense of things. Obviously, you can make your own organization's commitment towards that. But I do believe quotas work. I, I, uh, I worked in the US and New York for uh, in the 90s for many, many years. And um, of course, there were affirmative action quotas in the U.S., and people, you know, were very divided on whether they work or not, and whether the right best person gets the job. All the debates that go around quota. But at the end of the day, it does mean more people from underserved or under um, underrepresented groups get hired. And what that means is that someone else it sees that person in that position. And that someone can then say, I see it, so maybe I can be it. So maybe we had to go through that door to kind of get there. But unless people see themselves in those roles or positions, then it's hard for them to, hard for anyone to aspire for, it, including me. I, unless I saw women in leadership, I can say if I hadn't seen any women in leadership or on boards, I would have had a much time, harder time imagining myself there. And so, so, so what, do, what do you say to the people that look at it and say, does that mean that you're hiring someone who is not qualified? Yeah, I, I think that is a red freaking herring, pardon my language. And the reason I say that is what is qualified? Uh, the word qualified has really had patriarchal, colonial, white supremacy types of, uh, I'll use that language, definitions. It's like how we qualify what looks professional. Okay, so I think that that person who is on there is the best person given their lived experience and lived experience is valuable. So in the past, people would say qualified. Oh, they don't have the same education level maybe or they didn't get to go to an Ivy League school. Well, hello, we know why perhaps some people had a harder time getting those qualifications. Uh, but if we take those away and we look at just lived experience and say, how can this contribute to our understanding of our employee base, of our customer base, I say that uh, that qualification kind of thing is, um, is, is not a real thing. If you're looking for diversity of thought and diversity of experience to benefit in the way that we all talk about uh, in terms of why do diverse boards perform better, you don't have to have an Ivy League qualification to be qualified. 
you can you qualify because you are of um, you know you you have lived the life of the of the community in the community that that company is trying to serve. And I'll use that in the case of a woman as well. Uh, not, I'm not a racialized woman. I'm a white cis, cis het woman, right? But um, but uh, why was I qualified? Uh, why was I uh, put on a board? I, I can tell you, I'm pretty sure I was put on a board half the time, if not more, because I was the first woman on the board. But I didn't concern myself with that. I just said, great, let's go. Um, and, uh, and then try to make a difference and open the doors from there. So yeah, I think that whole qualification thing is a, and I have heard other women say, in my case, uh, I don't want to be on that board unless I'm the top qualified person. But I think that may be a little bit of internalized oppression, because again, if you, uh, if that's, if your perspective is the one that that board wants, then that's what they want. They may not even want your uh, you know, your paper credentials that want is who you are. And I think that's great. Hmm. I, I love, I've never heard that expression, internalized oppression. <laughs> right? It's like, I hear that from a lot of um, women that say, I don't want to be there just because I'm a woman. And my response is always, my lens as an educated Black woman with my experience brings a totally different lens and I do own the fact that I'm a black woman and I do own that I have different lived experiences so couple that with my experience you've got an amazing board member right and that's what we're talking about here yeah Yeah, I I think we really want to uh whittle away at that whole you know the best qualified person because that is uh the way we treat qualifications or how they're often interpreted is through um, through gates, right? It is the it is the way that boards stay white and mostly male because uh, you know because of our because of oppression over decades uh, there are and because women have children they have less management experience cumulatively over time they earn cumulatively less money which means they have less to maybe invest in you know uh, MBA education down the road. There's a lot of reasons why those the pool of people with those kinds of qualifications may not be uh, as out there or women have less board experience if they're going for paid board jobs because they have been the ones to do the caregiving and so on but that doesn't mean they aren't board savvy and exactly and that's that's the basis that's how we formed synergy executive on boards because of that whole meritocracy Mm-hmm. and how that meritocracy is so subjective, right? But that's a conversation for another day. So can you quickly touch on, you know, those people that are listening and they would love to join a board? Mm-hmm. How can they make sure that the mission, vision, and values of an organization is aligned to their own values? What, what, what tips do you give them? Uh, such a great question. And uh, the tips I give whenever I've, I've, I've made mistakes, uh, I've joined boards uh, and then went, whoa. <laughs> um, so here's the tips and the things that I practice myself. Number one is when I am asked to you know, consider joining a board, 
uh, I talk to other board members, other women, other people on the board to say, what is it, the, you know, what's it like? What, what is this leadership like? And not the chair and the vice chair, because they're usually, you know, close together. So I like to talk to other board members. Um, I also do re highly recommend that you ask for the bylaws uh, upfront and review them and look for uh, the, the mission, vision, values that's usually on the company website um, and look for alignment there. And, and had I done that in that one board experience I was talking about, I would have already seen significant difficulties uh, before even getting there. So ask for, the, ask for the bylaws to review them, ask um, you know, for if they, if they do have a strategic plan, for example, that they're willing to share with you, even in the nominating process, that may not be possible until you're in, but definitely their bylaws should be transparent. If they won't let you see that before you join a board, then I would be wary. I would also ask to see the financials. Um, the latest financials, if it's not a public board, uh, if it's a private or nonprofit, ask to see their financial, uh, uh, you know, their audited or notice to reader financials for the last fiscal year, because I can, um, there are many times uh, people get on boards, I've been in that situation too, when you get there and the first meeting you're asked to contribute thousands of dollars because they're in financial trouble, which is fine maybe, but that's not what was told to you when you were signing up. And, um, and uh, yeah, you wanna, be, you wanna know what you're getting into, uh, you know, for real. And so ask for those things. That's the, those are the things I would uh, look for when I'm signing up to a board. And, you know, and that's not, that could be mentioning as well, obviously look at who's around the board table um, and, uh, but, you know, if it's all white men still, or, you know, not 11 white men and one white woman, um, then maybe this is your opportunity to change, change that, but it will be heavy lifting because, um, yeah, it'll be, it's hard work when, you know, it's hard work to make things change like that. So know what you're getting into by asking for those documents and talking to some people on the board. Yeah, I've, I've, I've talked to so many people that consider that invite to come to the board is a, you know, is a privilege. And then mm -hmm. they shy away from asking the questions because they feel like maybe if I ask too many questions, they might say no, right? What do you say to those people? I say uh, it depends. I say, you know, have your antenna up. Uh, because if it's a nonprofit, let's say you're early in your board career and your first op, I cut my teeth in a, in a tiny little hospice nonprofit. That was the very first board appointment I ever had. And um, so uh, sometimes when you're joining really small boards, they don't have a lot of stuff organized or in a very good place, um, that kind of thing. So just know that if that's the case then don't expect them to have fabulous bylaws and so on, but you might be able to be there to help them upgrade them and so on. Um, yeah, so, uh, but don't be afraid to ask. I've been a board chair, I've been a president, I've been all of those things and recruited for other boards. And I respect when, when someone asks. It tells me they are savvy and they know what they're uh, working towards. It should never scare them off. And if it does, that's a signal right then and yep. there exactly exactly and in this way you you're not walking in blindly you know what you're walking into right so i know you and i could talk all day
I wish we had a one-hour podcast. <laughs> Can you yeah. summarize for the audience um, our conversation today? What are the most important nuggets that you want them to remember from our conversation? I think the most important thing is when we're talking about social change and especially what role business can play in advancing a better world. Boards and bylaws have a lot of power to help accelerate that change. And um, so I would love for people to, to, to take away the nugget that says, don't underestimate the power of boards and their bylaws. If you are on a board, ask whether now is a good time to review the bylaws. Uh, if you get no's, uh, just remember the environmental movement 20 years ago. Now, nobody would say no to that. In fact, people would say, oh my gosh, we haven't looked at uh, this, our bylaws through an environmental compliance lens and, and all of those things. So, um, yeah, I, I, I really would love people to walk away realizing that the boards and bylaws are important tools for social change. It's how business can play a role in advancing um, a better world in which all can flourish authentically and without oppression. And business has that chance to, it doesn't have to be the bad actor on the outside of this move to a better place that we're all fighting for. For sure. That's a great, great summary. So where can our listeners learn more about the work that you do with Lisbeth and the feminist bylaws? Where can they learn more? Okay, so first of all, uh, come and visit uh, lisbeth.com, L-I-I-S-B-E-T-H.com and go to our governance page. I do have the bylaws up there for downloading. Um, they're an abridged version that kind of highlights the big stuff, not like the Ontario jurisdiction, like the stuff that's specific to here. So it, it carries all the main, the main things. I also have a workshop coming up uh, and, a, and I think I have a breakfast with you. So watch the Elizabeth site for uh, workshops on uh, radical governance uh, as well. And um, yeah, those are the places. If you wanna reach me, publisher at lisbeth.com. And I'm also on all the social media channels as Lisbeth. Wonderful. This was Petra Kasun Much founding publisher for Lisbeth Media. Thank you so much, PK. Always a pleasure talking to you and learning all those insights. Till later. Thanks Thank so you. much, Trish. It was a pleasure being with you as well. And keep on the great work that you do with Synergy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Please go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and review as your feedback helps us in creating new content that continues to speak directly to you. Remember, good governance is the epitome of good leadership. Bye for now. <laughs>